0: Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith
1: McMillan.
2: You've tuned into the d3football.com around the nation podcast two guys and occasional guests talking about the news in ncaa division three football we're the largest division of the ncaa so why haven't you ever heard of us i'm pat coleman i'm the guy in charge of d3football.com and my co-host keith mcmillan has been involved with the site since 1999 and involved with this podcast since 2007 and uh keith i guess normally i would ask you to introduce yourself in some kind of random style but it's february and i'm cold
1: Pat, I, I think you're actually pretty warm. That was a pretty good introduction. I don't know if I need to say much else about myself. I've been your sidekick, your trusty co-host for 20 years now, the, the Batman to your, or the Robin to your Batman.
2: Yeah, Robin to Batman doesn't sound like a, a, uh, a relationship of equals. It's more like a, uh, more like a Bartles
1: and James. Oh, or, or Statler and Waldorf, I'd take those. Did you see that?
3: Yes, the frog is certainly taking a beating on this show.
1: It's hard to feel sorry for him. We take a beating every show. (laughs) Or we could go further down my path. We're like like Q-Tip and Fife or or Andre and Big Boy, nice and smooth. You have no idea who Andre 3000 is, do you?
2: Nice and smooth sounds like something I would use to shave my face in the morning. I I have no idea who that is. (laughs) Well, Pat,
1: uh, you know who Run and DMC are, right?
2: Okay. Yeah. Run. When you get to run and DMC, you've gotten to the place where, uh, where my hip hop knowledge exists.
1: Yeah. Clearly. So we just need to stay in the '80s for you, Pat. As soon as we touch the '90s, it's like your your pop culture radar just uh, turns completely to Seinfeld or something. <laughs>
2: dope, dope, d- yeah. It's not. Uh, it's not something I can do. We established. Uh, we established this in in talking with Jim Cadenzero, Right beyond run and dmc and ll and cool j come on man and that sort of thing i I don't have a whole
1: lot Uh, i think that's pretty it's pretty good basics
2: well that's good uh i if if that ever comes up if we ever need that narrow slice of uh mid to late 80s hip-hop and for some reason you're not available maybe i won't embarrass myself um so we've got that we've got a february podcast for you too we we very nearly didn't have a february podcast but managed thanks to the copiously bad winter that we've been having up here in the upper midwest i had a day last week in which i was told not to try to even come to the office and so you know i might have used some of that working from home time to work from home on a you know a podcast so we've got some of that and we'll figure out how to create a march podcast and an april podcast around my day job because, uh, man, it was, uh, it was touch and go. I was pretty sure we were not going to have a podcast this month.
1: I mean, I think lopping those four days off of February really matters. Like it, it, it seems like it's the the 20th and then all of a sudden it's, it's March 1st right on top of you. Just having the, the 28 days is you don't realize how much you appreciate the 29th, 30th and 31st until you're missing. Them.
2: You know, and if you go back to like when I was younger, uh, um, it would be February would be the worst because, you know, you'd still have to pay the same amount of rent or your mortgage would still be the same. Your car insurance would still be the same. And you got like three days less of pay that that just seemed to be totally unfair. I At least I'm at a point now where I get paid twice a month, like on the 15th and at the end of the month, no matter what. So it's not the same, but it just like that's one of the reasons. One of the other reasons I hated
1: February. Yeah, I'm on actually monthly paychecks now. And if I'm glad I hope I never have to go back to twice weekly and and praying for that one month where you get the three paychecks, you know, the first 15th and and 30th you get paid or, or whatever the the math works out to be. It's much uh I I'd much rather just get paid once cuz all your bills are monthly. You send everything away once and then the other 29, 30, 31 days you don't have to worry about it.
2: Man, those three paycheck months though, especially when uh... You and I were working together at the same really low paying uh, journalism place that we both t- used to work at. Those three paycheck months were the ones like, OK, here's where we're going to, I don't know, get the car fixed or, you know, we're going to pay off uh, one of
1: those pay a little extra on the credit card. Absolutely. Yeah, man. The, the exactly where I was going with that. Pay off the credit card. Um yeah, you had to buy that that thing you you haven't been able to afford—the lawnmower, or whatever it is that you need. That third, that three paycheck month, uh, I think was the one back in the day.
2: The three paycheck month, and then you know, back when people used to get tax refunds, wasn't that cool?
1: Well, yeah, you got to learn about your withholdings now, don't you?
2: And re-withholdings, and it's a—it's different every single time. So that's what uh, that's what February used to be like. February around here, around Division Three football land, is about. You know, a couple of things it's about uh, teams now starting to announce their schedules it's about you know some of the last of those coaching changes and then you know lately in the past couple of years we've still had stuff going on into march and into april and you know a couple of them in july but uh, the big hire that uh, we were talking about on the website over the course of the past week or so was Johns Hopkins as they uh, formally hired Greg Chimera, who we talked to in the January podcast. So if you didn't listen to 234, you can hear about uh, you can hear from Greg Chimera. He talks not only about you know having played for Jim Margraf, who if I guess if you missed pod 234, maybe you don't know that uh, Jim Margraf uh, died of an apparent heart attack. I think it's okay to say that at the beginning of January, so a big shock, the uh, longtime and successful head coach of Johns Hopkins University. Um, his uh, assistant, uh, Chimera, was then just very recently named the uh, permanent, quote-unquote, head coach uh, uh, rather than just interim. And I think we talked about this, we either talked about it on the site or in the pod, I believe, last month, but uh, Johns Hopkins really, we thought, was a school that could have commanded like a big-name hire here, someone who is a, a well-established, Division three head coach or maybe like a, an FCS coordinator or someone out of the Ivy League because it was a job that, uh, you know, I w- we thought was going to be very attractive to a lot of people. But also the other school of thought is, you know, this is a program that has had a long chain of continuity. Margraf had been there for, you know, just about forever. So, you know, maybe that's a situation where it does make sense to hire from within no matter what the talent pool looks like. So, you know, say Johns did this now going on about nine years ago. Mount Union did this, of course. Uh, UW-Whitewater, the first time around, they did the opposite when they hired Lance Leipold, and then they did this, they hired from within, when they brought in Kevin Bullis.
1: Yeah, and I think both of those examples uh, that you gave are are fairly instructive to what uh, Johns Hopkins is facing. I I think there, there are two reasons why, you know, the reason why you want to hire from within, and usually when this happens, everyone who's already in place, wants to keep the, the, the continuity. They want to stick with the person they know. They, um, you know, there's not that unknown of all these things that are going to change, but as the, the Lance Leipold hire shows, you know, sometimes the outside mind is the best mind. Sometimes that change is, is what you need because when it, when a person comes in from the outside, everything gets reexamined. And, and sometimes you just do things because that's the way they've always been done. And that's not always the best or most efficient way to do them, and so sometimes that outside uh, set of eyes or, or mind is uh, is great for your program. But I think usually the the continuity is is good, and it, it's it's a real time saver uh, among other things. But it also just uh, it helps with you know keeping the recruiting pipeline flowing and keeping the alumni happy. And uh, I think in the case of, of Gary Foshing, and in the case of Kevin Bullis, who who took over for Leipold at Whitewater, you know, it took those guys a couple of years. They, they struggled a little bit, um, not, they didn't struggle, struggle, but relative to the team they took over and to the legend they were replacing uh, in, in until this season where St. John's and Whitewater were two of the, the five best teams in the country. You know, you look at a situation like like at Wesley where, where Chip Knapp was following his uh, friend and legend uh, Mike Dress. His team was in every game this season. They were six and four, and they lost by one three times and by by two another time. So they may have been very well just about as good as as a ten and O team, um, but because the expectation is so high, it looks like you know the the continuity actually forced a team to take a step back. I, I think actually it um, it's, it's hard to fade to follow a legend to follow. In a, in in the footsteps of someone who's been really su- successful, than it is to to take over a losing program, start from scratch, and be given free reign. Blame it on
2: the
1: rain. In a year or two or three years, to to lose or, or build toward being a winner, you, you look at Johns Hopkins next year. You know if they're not back in the semifinals, back in the playoffs, or something like that, uh, those folks will look at it as probably a disappointment or, or a step back, and, and maybe begin to question the hire.
2: You know, it's probably OK to list hires that uh, didn't work as well, or maybe it's not. Maybe I don't want to start like throwing stones at people. I- I'm not sure if we wouldn't necessarily want to call out either coaches who weren't successful or schools that made, you know, what turned out to be ill-fated hiring decisions.
1: Oh, I, I was hoping you would. I- I'm here for that. I'm, I'm petty like that. I-, I hoped you had a list uh, ready uh, of schools that uh, whose continuity moves necessarily didn't work.
2: Okay, I got a bone to pick with a lot of you. No, I think uh, if we're going to talk about, uh, I, we could talk about a couple of really well-established ones that uh, that we've talked about in the past. You think about the turnover that happened at RPI, where they literally had like five coaches in three years after uh, Joe King was uh, was retired. Let's put it that way. And uh, and DePaul similarly had a, a very long string of uh, of uh, you know turnover in coaches when uh, Nick Marozas. Uh, when he when he retired uh some years ago, so you know that's a that's a situation. Those are the kind of situations where something could happen and uh you know things could kind of the the wheels could kind of fall off the wagon there
1: and I think with two hundred and fifty schools, you'll always see situations where some of these ideas that seem like a good idea at the time turn out with the benefit of hindsight to have not been a great idea but uh, whether it takes a few years under the same guy, like it did for St. John's or for Whitewater, or whether it takes a cycling through a few guys to find the right guy, as RPI did and as DePaul eventually eventually did, um, you know, I, I think you, you can you can land in a good place either way.
2: Uh, full disclosure: This is the second time that we have recorded this part of the podcast. Uh, we had some uh, recording technical issues earlier, and I did not even realize the first time we went through this that uh, we could kind of. Put our first guest into one of those categories at some point. Uh, it's a it's a hire by Aurora University, which uh, is somebody who has not been a head coach at the collegiate level. Uh, spent many years in the NFL. Uh, ran a uh, a speed camp. That's I I have not yet. Uh, and as many times as I've tried to say it, I haven't quite got the right combination for whatever whatever we would call House's speed. Well, we're going to chat with Don Beebe. He's the new head coach at Aurora. Football fans may remember his name from another context.
1: Fumble! And Leon left! Oh, oh,
4: oh, it the look Here Here goes comes Leon. the <laughs> To the 20! <laughs> Go, Leon! And it's Oh, Leon Litt has oh, it it fumble. It's a fumble! It's a fumble! He had it not. behind the bills came and knocked it out of his oh, it's, not a, it's not gonna be a touchdown. no it's not Don Beebe caught him from behind
2: we'll also be joined by Colton Bartholomew who is a reporter for the Lacrosse Tribune he'll tell us about how he uncovered the fact that a division three football head coach was sharing one team's playbook with another opposing head coach and we'll find out about the reaction to that and then we'll wrap up by talking about the Chance and the possibility of regional realignment within Division Three football. We have been in a four-region alignment in Division Three football for, I believe, forever. Basically, at least since we left the East and West region align- alignment from back in the early seventies. So uh, there's a movement afoot to. Uh, make all of Division Three sports a little more standard in that there would be about 40 teams in a region. And that means that in Division Three football, we'd probably have six regions. So we're going to talk about how that might come about, what are the pros and cons. We'll be chatting about that kind of roundtable style with Frank Rossi and Greg Thomas coming up uh, a little bit later in this podcast. I'd also like to take this time to mention that the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is currently sponsored by, yeah, we could fill in that blank with your name and you'd be reaching an audience full of decision makers in Division three football, the coaches who are making their equipment purchases or at least budgeting them out for 2019, who are thinking about whether it's the right time to put uh, new turf on the field. Is it, you know, is their turf been on there for eight years or nine years? Is it lifespan, you know, reached its end? That's a big money decision. You can reach the people who make those decisions by sponsoring the uh, Around the Nation podcast. So Keith and I would be waxing poetic about your product or your service right now here in our break. So think about it. Drop me a line at pat.coleman at d3sports.com because you are definitely missing out. We have that audience for you. And now the d3football.com Around the Nation podcast, joined by Don Beebe, the new head coach at Aurora University in Aurora, Illinois. You may recognize his name because he was a receiver in the National Football League for nine years, including six trips to the Super Bowl and a a Super Bowl championship. Coach, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down with us here today.
5: I'm happy to be here, Pat. Thanks for having me.
2: Tell us a little bit about why you pursued becoming a Division III head coach. You've got you know, uh, a, a long NFL resume, which I just briefly touched on. Uh, you're a head coach at the high school level in Chicagoland with two state championships. Uh, you know, a, a, a training, um, a, a training uh, program to your name, a training uh, firm, etc. Why was it t- interesting to you to be a Division three football head coach?
5: Well, I, I will be honest, Pat. Um, this kind of just fell on my lap uh about two months ago i actually um you know i first retired i i started a business called house of speed that trains athletes and and i just wanted to get involved in coaching because i knew i wanted to be a part of kids lives and be a mentor to them and uh so a local high school um i took the job just voluntarily um a matter of fact all 11 of our coaches on our staff there Aurora christian were all volunteer coaches Wow. And we were just having a time of our life and i wanted to be around my kids lives i got four kids you know three girls and then a uh, uh, one son and i wanted to be a- around their life um i thought that was very important uh not just for me but for them too and uh, if i would have gone off and coach which i had opportunities to go coach you know back in the nfl back in the early 2000s and coach at the college level and i just you know it just wasn't it just wasn't what i w- thought was most important at that time and and uh, so now that I'm an empty nester here, um, I took last year off to go see my kids play their final year, senior year, and then my son's rookie year. And I wanted to just see them play. And, and then after that year, I knew I was gonna get into coaching somewhere. Um, and I thought it was gonna be, you know, at college level, maybe pro level, I wasn't quite sure yet. I had my house up for sale. I was ready, you know, it was on sale for eight months and I was ready to go somewhere. And all of a sudden this job just opened up here at Aurora University. I was born in Aurora. My wife was born in Aurora. We're Aurorans. And um and it, I was just flabbergasted when I got a call and I was like, Wow You know, I I didn't even think about it until two months ago. Yeah. And uh went over and visited and sat down with the athletic director and fell in love with it. Um the president here is I think she does a great job, Doctor Shirik and, and I just thought from then uh this was where you know, I'm a faith-based guy. I just felt like this is where the Lord wanted to be. And I took my house off the market and here I am. I've talked to many of my friends who, you know, are head coaches in the NFL or in college level or high school level. And every one of them to the man says the toughest job is head coach at D3.
2: <laughs> yeah.
5: And I was like, well, I, you know, for many reasons, I think you have to wear a lot of hats mm-hmm. um, and you got you know, the recruiting thing can be tough, but I have found it to be very enjoyable. I love uh, talking to kids and recruiting kids and um, I've found it to be very enlightening and something I actually am loving doing right now, Pat.
2: When you're recruiting, when you're out there talking with uh, student athletes and talking with their parents and that sort of thing, do you find that your name rings better with the parents than it does with the student athlete that you're talking to?
5: Uh, you know, for the most part, I, I would, you know, I would say yes. But when, when the kids come in for you know, the recruiting things or I'm, I'm out on the road, you know, I, I travel, I like to travel and go see kids. I mean, they pretty much know uh, either their coaches fill them in or they YouTube me or Googled it or whatever. They, <laughs> I'm, I'm actually very impressed with what these kids know. Um, and um, so, it, it, you know, but I try to, when I sit down with them, I, you know, I try to say this, ain't, you know, this ain't about me. This is about your, you and your future now. And, and uh, you know, let's, Let's uh, help you in your path, or whatever that is.
2: Let's talk a little bit more about the recruiting in general. Uh, Recruiting at the Division three level uh, is, you know, is a difficult thing because you don't have a scholarship to offer. You have to sell that uh, prospective student athlete on your entire college experience, et cetera, et cetera. I I feel like coaches come into Division three for the first time, and that is new to them, and that is where things, you know, are uh, are the most difficult adjustment.
5: Um, you know, I, I actually enjoy the challenge, Pat. Um, you know, I know it's a tough sale. I get that, uh, you know, when somebody can sit there and say, your school's free and we tell them, you know, depending on your academics and whether you can commute and all those things, I mean, we, we can't hand them a football scholarship. I mean, they know that though, you know, um, but what I found though is kids love to compete. Kids love to be a part of something that's passionate uh kids love to be a part of a a winner um they want to be part of something that's fun Mm
2: -hmm.
5: and um and when i sat my staff down from the very first day i said this is the atmosphere we got to create and and we got to do that it's already gonna be a tough enough sale but kids we'll get kids we'll get quality kids that are high in character that's the first thing we recruit is character and uh, we'll get those kids And we have, I'll be honest with you, we've gotten some really good commits right now. I really like this this class. Not only that, the kids that we have here, um, I have found they're a great group, um, but the the training regimen that we're doing is, you know, it's another level of training. Now, obviously, I can't be down there doing it, but, you know, I sit down with the people that can and uh, these kids are passionate. They, they're bought in 100 miles an hour. Um, and I'm really enjoying to see the, the difference in, in the way they're approaching this offseason.
2: Tell us a little bit about what you guys did or do at House of Speed when you have a, an athlete come in and then how that you, gets adapted to what you have the Aurora team doing in preparation for the 2019 season.
5: Well, house speed's a little different because I can train them. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I I find it odd that you know being a D3, being the coach, I can't train my own kids. I could do it in high school.
4: Yeah.
5: Um, You know, you can do it at Division One, pretty much. uh, You know, as far as practice stuff like that, Division Three is a different animal. And so I, you know, I got to learn how to adapt to that because I'm a real passionate guy, hands-on guy, but I'm not gonna break the rules either. So uh, they are what they are. So all I can do is, is talk to the guys when I first met them, you know, and had that meeting when I first met them, and I just laid it out to them, you know, and, um, and I, I've, I've made a point that, um, I've met with each kid individually. I'm still actually going through those meetings, you know, I try to fit 80, 90 meetings or so whenever kids have got 80 kids, mm-hmm. you know, meetings into you know, a month or two. Yeah. It's a lot of meetings. Yeah. Um, and I'm meeting with each kid individually and just getting to know them. And they get to know me. And so they can feel and hear the passion and the, you know what it takes to be great. Um, and all those things that you know, young men love to hear and wanna be a part of and, and know what the expectations are and I lay it out to them. Um, and so I, I, I don't do that in House of Speed. House of Speed's a different animal. I can actually train them. You know, They certainly can feel the passion and, and, but I can show them there. Uh, you know, different techniques and how to do that. I can't do that until I get 16 practice in the spring and then next fall. So, um, you know, I got to be patient, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and when it comes to Division three football in that respect. But they still can feel the passion. They can still f- hear me, you know, talk to them. And, and, um, and the people that we have training them here, our, our strength and conditioning staff, believe this or not, they're old house of speed people from years ago. I trained the head guy here when he was in middle school and high school and he's been, he was already here 10 years before I even got here. So that was a, that was a very nice plug uh, to be able to have him here okay. uh, in our He's our head strength and condition coach at AU, but he's a, he's a former house of speed student of ours years ago. So he knows the house of speed way of training athletes. So, uh, and I'm a firm believer, Pat, you don't, you, you get better in the off season. You don't, you don't get better in August. Okay. You get better now.
2: Mm -hmm. And uh, if
5: you wait till August, it's too late.
2: So you meet with each kid individually, obviously, to get to know them as a person. You must spend some time watching video of them from last year as well. Is it, you know, you don't get spring practice for a little while yet. So you don't even get kids on the field, uh, you know, and the division three spring practice being what it is. Uh, How do you, how do you kind of evaluate the kids that are coming back for what they're going to bring on the field?
5: Well, I, I mean, I, I can watch the film from last year, you know, so the kids that actually played, I can evaluate them their film. The kids that didn't play, the younger kids, you know, I never recruited them, so I don't really know. I, mm-hmm. I have no idea yeah. what they can yeah. and cannot do. All I can evaluate is the film I see from last year's game. So, uh, and then when, as you said, and it, it's a great point, Pat, I mean, spring comes up, well, you know, we barely can even put a hat on. <laughs> you know, so... In cleats, um, so we'll get we'll go out there and in 16, they're basically going to be mental practices, you know. And I have to install a whole new offense, you know. So there's there's a lot that has to be done from just running reps uh, without you know no contact or game speed really at all. Yeah. So it's going to be a lot of walk through stuff basically, um, but at least it, we'll get the mental part of it down. Um, and then once camp comes around, you know, we'll, we'll be able to get a little bit more physical, but even at that, it's, it's far limited than when I was around, man. (laughs) I tell you, when I played, I think my first, my first year in the league, I think we had six weeks of double days, um, yeah, back in the eighties. So, uh, now I, there is no more double days. There's no such thing as a double day anymore. Right. Um, but that's fine. I mean, I could still find, you know, if a kid could play or not and what have you, um, so I, I really now that I'm just finishing up recruiting wise, I'm going to be hitting really evaluating each kid individually and going through every game film of last year and get to know these kids that played last year.
2: When these guys report for practice in the spring or for camp in August, is there going to be a drill in which they have to chase down a fumble return for 70 yards and then try to keep them from getting in the end zone?
5: Yeah, well, I think, I think most people know what you're referring to. You know, it's funny you ask that because, um, no, there's no drills for that. That's something that's your character. It's who you are as a, is a man of character or you're not. And that's not something you can just flip a switch on. I mean, that's something that's ingrained in you as a, as a human being from a young man. Um, certainly, those are things that are going to be talked about here, and those are going to be things that we uh, are going to um, expect out of our kids. But, but at the same time... Um, I'm a firm believer you are who you are, uh, and and that's why it's really important for us in our recruiting process that we that we're recruiting those types of kids. Mm-hmm. You know, when I watch a film, I can tell if a kid, for the most part, if he has character or not. I'll, I'm not going to share how I do that, but um, a lot of times I won't even watch their highlight film. I'll watch somebody else's highlight film from the same team, and then just watch him. You know. Uh, so, with that being said, I. And then when they come in for a visit or I go and visit them, I really watch how they sit in that chair and how they look and, I mean, just the way they speak and how they treat their mom in that interview or whoever is in that interview. Um, Those are real big tricks of the trade, let's say, that I've learned from great men that really understood football, be it the Marv Levy's of the world and Bill Polian's of the world and guys like that that taught me a lot of what to look for in a a high-character person.
2: Yep, so that's Don Beebe, collegiate head coach for the first time, going through the learning process of what he can and can't do in Division three, and then having to learn about his players and what they do on all of this stuff during the offseason, Keith.
1: It sounds to me like he's he's hit the ground running, he's in a good place, a happy place, and and so is the college. You know, the the falling in love part really stands out to me, The and it's probably something we can all relate to, because except for those of us who grew up with fathers or brothers who played for certain D3 schools or or in the town where a D3 school is located, we all went to a campus and fell in love as well. I didn't grow up wanting to play for Randolph-Macon and I didn't even know where or what it was when I fr- got my first recruiting letter, but I swear by that place to this day. And for Don, being an Aurora native and having God, in his telling, call him to this place, is a really nice tale. Pat, you, you and I have done like a jillion.
4: One jillion dollars. <gasps>
1: I guess, technically 235 of these. And it amazes me that we hear stories that we've never heard before. The having his house on the market eight months and the wanting to stay in one place and then finally being ready to leave and go to some other place. And then all of a sudden this thing opens up and calls him to stay in the place where he's from and uh, you know a school that he'd never really considered in the job search. Is, uh, is a pretty amazing story. And look, Aurora is not going to be a national championship contender, but BB could have them at the top of the knack just from the recruiting and training advantages alone. So should be a fun one for us to watch from afar.
2: Yeah, I felt like if I had had uh, more time, I would have asked him about why his house was on the market for eight months, I mean, who's the who's the realtor who's not uh, you know giving them good advice about how to stage the house or what kind of upgrades it needs? In what in this day and age, I did not expect that any house stays on the market for eight months.
1: And yeah, somebody's been watching a lot of HGTV.
2: <laughs> well, it is uh, it is secondhand HGTV in my house, that's for sure.
1: Also, Pat, you lived in the DC area and in the Minneapolis area, it's two places where houses probably jump right off the market, and, and maybe that's not the case in Aurora. That could be, that could be. Eight months is still a lot, though. I'm with you.
2: And now on the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, we're joined by Colton Bartholomew. Colton is a reporter for the Lacrosse Tribune out of Lacrosse, Wisconsin, and has had a couple of interesting stories to write about football here in the off season. So, uh, Colton, first of all, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, take us through the story and the kind of backstory around uh, the, the story from your paper that, uh, under your byline with the headline, Tribune Investigation, UW-Whitewater Defensive Scheme Sent to UW-Lacrosse Football.
3: Sure. So it all actually started with the reassignment of Luke Banks and the UWL Offensive Coordinator in the middle of the season. It was the fourth week of the season, right after the bye week uh, for lacrosse, and they were just getting ready to play Whitewater. And all of a sudden, Luke Bankson's not at practice. Uh, so he miss wasn't that their TV show that they do on Mondays. So, you know, after a couple of days seeing this, I didn't know if he was sick or whatnot. So after a few days, ask about it, figure out that he's being reassigned in the athletic department. Then start getting the runaround from UWLHR. And I understand at a certain point that they're not allowed to give information, but yeah. – uh, Went back and forth with them for a few months and eventually had to uh, file a Freedom of Information Act uh, request to get the open records on kind of exactly what happened with Luke Banks and why that happened. And then as part of the documents that I got with that open records request uh, was this email chain that showed that starting with Craig Smith, the former Whitewater offensive coordinator, um, defensive schemes from Whitewater. They're basically these PowerPoints that they would give to players. Uh, at the beginning of the season or during training camp, that would explain, you know, their assignments through each part of their defense and kind of break everything down. It's um, so all those eight powerpoints in total, and this email was sent from Craig Smith to uh, Nelson Edmonds down at Dubuque, who's a former Whitewater assistant, and then that was given to Stan Sweefel, the Dubuque coach, and then Stan Sweefel sent it to Mike Schmidt here at Lacrosse.
2: It's fascinating to me that. Uh, that this information got uh, passed along and passed along. Uh, first of all, that it ever emanated from uh, Craig Smith in the first place, who you know was uh, the was the offensive coordinator in 2017, and then not thereafter. Um, but that it would get that it got passed along in a couple of places is what I think makes this the most interesting. Is that it went to Dubuque and then it continued on.
3: Yeah, it, it, it's there's clearly bad blood all throughout. If you just kind of string these things back, there's bad blood uh, throughout that email chain where you start with, obviously Mike Schmidt here at lacrosse rivals with whitewater, kind of everybody in this area mm-hmm. looks at whitewater and that's the team everybody wants to beat. And sure. so that, that you start with that. But then uh, Stan Sweetful has got his own history with whitewater was yep. passed up back in 07 for landslide Leipold. <laughs> you know, looking back, you can't really blame whitewater. It worked out for him, but, there's uh, so there's bad blood there, and then obviously you start at the beginning with Craig Smith, where uh, he was basically let go uh, for Jake Landry, who was at lacrosse previously, right. uh, to come and be offensive coordinator, and they they didn't go how they didn't follow the the normal procedures for you know, letting somebody go and then hiring somebody. They they used an emergency hire, which uh, I looked into for a little while at the time. Personally, it wasn't how I thought the emergency hiring was supposed to go in the U of U system, but that they did find a way. It's not like they did anything wrong in that sense, but uh, so you can just see throughout this whole chain, there's bad blood and there's just a lot of resentment towards Whitewater, and uh, and clearly it manifests in a way that you know this this thing kind of happened.
2: Well, and of course the fact that uh, a, that this is in a state university system, you know, makes a FOIA request uh, even possible right uh and that's
3: that was part of it too it's obviously because of the uh the UW lacrosse emails uh that it was all through is that why I was able to see it but you know it it did start with in the gmail section so you can tell like there are some of these people that knew like you know kind of take it off the public space uh, public space of it
2: right exactly um I guess I have to think that you know, we're I guess not. To, we're going to drift a little bit into the realm of analysis and specul- speculation. I guess I have to think this sort of thing has probably happened elsewhere, and is is probably this is not a, an isolated incident. But uh, the fact that it's been brought to light, I think, is in the times that in the time that I've covered Division three football, I don't know that we have known about something so blatant. It's not like. Uh, it's not like these schemes are stolen right they were uh, right. Craig Smith uh, created them and they're dated and whatever and uh, and that sort of thing but it was uh it's just kind of surprising that uh, that it, it got uh, that that you happened to stumble across it in the course of investigating something else
3: right and that's the funny thing that I know there's some anger towards me out there and from uh, lacrosse you know supporters and all that like that stuff that I'm you know trudging up. You know bad information or whatever, but it's like at the end of the day, it was part of a report that was about something else. And it just happened to be in this email chain. And it kind of put me in a spot where if I didn't report on it, then I'm part of, you know, not, you know, covering it up almost. But then to your, to your overall point where, yeah, I don't think this is a earth shattering thing either. I think this happens quite a bit, especially when you talk about coaches switching spots. Like I'm sure when Jake Landry went from lacrosse to Whitewater, he brought what they had been doing at lacrosse to there it's the same type of thing not exactly as you know apples to apples of here's our playbooks here's our schemes that we're going to do against this formation that formation but you know when you're talking about people's people's knowledge and their information that they have uh, that, that's a factor of it too where if you, you hire somebody from a rival school or from somebody that you you want to beat consistently that's going to have that knowledge and kind of know the players and all those types of things so i think that part of it's common it's just like you said the, the finding out that this actually happened isn't too common
2: What what's been the reaction? Uh, Obviously, this story now has been out there for uh, the better part of a month. What's been the reaction to it?
3: You know, internally,
2: uh, I haven't heard
3: too much, Uh, obviously, with uh, as busy as we are with basketball season lacrosse, basketball team doing pretty well uh, right now. And then with football, just being kind of in that recruiting phase, getting ready for spring ball in a few weeks here, haven't had too much contact with those coaches. I mean, speculatively, I'm sure I'm not the most popular person in the world over there, but that's just (laughs) part of the job, too. You're not always going to be when you're in the media. Um, But overall, I I just think it's – I think people are a little disappointed because uh, they they didn't expect something like this to happen. But then I think there's also a sentiment of people aren't sure how much it really mattered. Obviously, the lopsided game score when – Whitewater played Dubuque and lacrosse. Those are factors that you can't really ignore. It's like, and it's an old football adage. You know, I can tell you, I can hand you the playbook. You don't know what order I'm going to do when I'm in. If my players are good enough, like what Whitewater's were this year, they could run whatever they wanted and they're still probably going to win. So uh, there, I think there's a mix of disappointment and then also like uh, people questioning how big of a deal
2: it really is. I'm looking through here and I don't see reaction from lacrosse in the story or from the University of Dubuque. That's correct.
3: Yeah. I mean, uh, I talked with Mike Schmidt before it came out, um, was essentially no comment, uh, more in the sense of that he wasn't allowed to say anything about the whole story from an HR sense. Um, And then I'm I'm personally surprised that there hasn't been some type of reaction after the fact from UW lacrosse. But um, yeah, that's kind of where we sit right now, where it it was published and I think they're uh, just kind of done with it.
2: Uh, we've conversed with Mike Schmidt, obviously not nearly as much as you have and this is a program that has you know was was uh, was strong and proud uh, decades ago and was toe to toe with whitewater into the mid 2000s uh, a little bit over a decade ago. Uh, you know, kind of hit rock bottom, maybe not rock bottom, but you know had a had a prolonged dip at the beginning part of this decade and then has bounced. Back a little bit what, what's the kind of general mood around where the lacrosse football program is headed the last couple of years
3: oh it's never been higher in my time here I, I came to lacrosse in 2014 right at, I'd say right in the middle of that that prolonged dip like you mentioned uh and there was really just not any positivity about the program uh not only just because of the the wins and losses when you looked at what Whitewater was doing uh, winning in this conference is going to be a bear to begin with but just the sense of they couldn't get any players from around here that were you know solid to, to good division three players to stick around. they were losing local recruits to places like Platteville, Whitewater and Oshkosh and then uh, th- just the general sense of the lack of connection between the program and the community, all that stuff has changed. Obviously the wins and losses have changed. they're gotten better. they're uh, in competitive in these games now where they were getting you know waxed a few years ago and they're winning out on a lot of recruits and you see them dipping into Illinois and Minnesota more, which are things that they had trouble with before Mike Schmidt. And then now overall just the the sense of hey football games are fun to be at. Uh, that's something that they need to work on a little bit too, just the attendance overall, but I think that's across the board at Lacrosse. I wrote about that a little while ago as well. But just the, the overall sense of the positive feeling in the community between the football program, the environments on Saturdays, all that's gotten extraordinarily better under Mike Schmidt.
2: Keith, I thought this was just such an interesting story when I read it that we had to follow up on it. You know, we don't usually interview other journalists on this podcast. It's not like we're National Public Radio or something like that. And it's journalists interviewing journalists. But uh, I just thought that we really had to get more of the story on this. I, had to, I have to imagine this happens more often, as, as I've said before, but it's not often that something like this comes to the surface in an open records case.
1: Yeah, well, certainly, as you mentioned, it being a state school makes a FOIA request possible where the, the public would not have a right to know at a private institution that doesn't rely on tax dollars. So that was a unique bit of fortune. But I also think this is just good journalism. Uh, As sure as you both acknowledge in the interview, it's not the most groundbreaking, important story, but it was discovered in an organic way. And let that be a lesson. For the millionth time, the best way to get a journalist to stop asking questions is to answer the ones they ask you. The more you turn away, the more you trigger that urge to dig for that person to ask more questions. And if the school, in this case... Had dealt with the original story, none of the rest of it would become public through uh, through Colton Bartholomew's uh, interest in the in the in the uh, story. You know, as for the substance, I guess I'm definitely from the "Who cares if they know the play? Make them stop it" era. Although that's probably an overrated cliche because it certainly helps to know what's coming. But I think whatever is in a playbook could probably be discerned by the coaches watching video and game planning. The real advantage is knowing the other team's terminology and their adjustments or checks or audibles off certain plays or out of certain looks but mostly this was really just an exercise in machismo right to just pat i have something uh to to pass along to you that i got from these guys and keep it on the low as it says in in the uh in the article there uh, but the funny part of course is that both dubuque and and lacrosse got drilled by whitewater 38 6 and 30 to 7 this season. So a lot of good all of this did.
2: Yeah, I, I I know I mentioned this before, but I really think that um the big questions have to be asked around University of Dubuque. You know, why is uh it, it's one thing to have this information arrive and kind of land in your lap. And then you do with it what you may or may not do, right? But then you pass it on to somebody else. That is where that is where a significant line gets crossed in my opinion.
1: Yeah, well, it's interesting too that you know it's not an accident that it ended up at at a place where, at least looking at it on the surface, lacrosse had was maybe capable of of beating whitewater this season, or that's what we thought coming into the year. Whitewater turned out to be uh, pretty darn good this year, and and, and lacrosse didn't quite live up to expectations. But and it's I don't imagine it's it's you know an accident that that ended up. In in Dubuque's hands either. So um, again, not a not a huge deal. It's sort of like low level, not even not even. I mean, I guess technically it's cheating, but it's just like low level twisting the knife on your rival. Um, and again, it didn't do any any good really. So it, the thing I, I really liked coming out of that, um, I, I thought Colton just made this this really great point. But once he uh, finds this that, this thing out. And this is part of why reporters should deny requests to, to take conversations off the record is because once he finds this out, he's now inserted into the story and he has to make a call, a conscious decision to either keep a secret and now participate in in this thing, or, which no reporter, of course, is in the business of keeping secrets, or follow the story to his logical conclusion, which is what he did here. And, and I encourage you, if you're uh, listening to this podcast and not in the car or on the treadmill or other places where you normally listen to podcasts and you have your computer or your phone up, go ahead and, uh, and, and look for the headline uh, Tribune Investigation uh, Whitewater Defensive Schemes Sent to UW lacrosse Football. Read the story. You might get a chuckle at it, out of it. You might find it um, a more serious offense than, than some folks did.
2: And that's a good point, Keith. We'll add that link within the description of this podcast so it'll make it easier for people. Welcome back to the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. One of the big issues going on right now around Division Three, not just in football, but covering football for sure, is uh, talk of regional realignment. Now, we have been in a four-region alignment in Division Three football for just about ever. Uh, we started with an 18 playoff back in the early 70s, and uh, you know, not a lot of things have changed since then. But there's some moves afoot in Division Three to standardize the number of teams in each region, whether that is a sport such as men's basketball, which is sponsored by more than 420 schools, or something like lacrosse, which is 200-plus uh, and growing rapidly, or something like football, which has been in the relatively uh, familiar 4-region, 60-team-per-region alignment since... You know, basically nothing has changed in about the past 15 years and very little has changed in the past 25. We're going to have Brad Bankston on to talk about uh, a little bit about how this might affect football. Could you picture six regions instead of four in Division III football in the future? Here is where Brad Bankston, who is the commissioner of the Old Dominion Athletic Conference and a member of the Division III Championships Committee, chatting with Dave McHugh of Hoopsville, which is a show that's about basketball oddly enough you can listen to that on d3hoops.com you can listen to brad and dave here
0: if they go to six regions as you know they don't even have six at large bids <laughs> they're less than right that. It, yeah how do you sure. how do you balance though the uniquenesses of some sports like that per the as you said broad broad stroke approach of trying to get everybody on the same page uh, i think it's very difficult to do and um, i know that even as the proposal is kind of propelling its way through the through the structure, there will be concerns that will be expressed um, by conferences. There may be concerns expressed by sport committees that I hope, uh, it's my hope, that, that the championships committee, and I'll have another, I have a year on the committee and I'm gone from the council, my council service, uh, will, will have the, um, the, will be open enough to, uh, to consider uh, in anything that comes from a sport committee related to how this may not work for them. So, if you use football for an example, and I think one of the one of the principles, uh, the the values of what we were looking to do this in was better balancing the regions in numbers, trying to create a scenario, and I think you talked about it a little bit earlier in basketball, where each region's ranking the same number mm-hmm. of teams as best as possible, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and understanding that you know if we grew football from one to the other. There's no guarantee that every region gets an at-large, mm-hmm. and I think if you go back and look at the selections last year, a large majority of the uh, of the extra bids uh, of the pool C bids may have come from you know a, a one one specific region or a couple regions. So I, I think the idea of having more people on the table was not unappealing um, to to some of my colleagues of saying, hey, you know, maybe we're going to be in a situation where. We actually have a chance to, you know, have a have a team on the table. That, you know, are they going to get selected in the end? Maybe not, but they may be a part of the conversation. And I think you, you 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 kind of touched a little bit on the idea of well, what is, what does that really mean? Mm-hmm. Well, that means that somebody might be ranked in a region that typically hadn't been ranked. So right. now you're getting versus regionally ranked opponents. Well, yeah. that, that's a that's a geographic region that probably needed to be there and it's okay if they're playing a ranked team that traditionally may not have been ranked before. I mean that that's going to be part of what happens in this 8 to 10 kind of idea, this 4 to 6 idea. But in the end, when you're when you're on the board, that doesn't mean that you're in any better shape to be selected than anybody else that's on the board. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that matters if you're the third ranked team in a region versus the fifth ranked team in a region. That ultimately, once you're on the table, and this is my understanding of the way those committees work, and I worked in football for four years and chaired it for two, that everybody's equal once they're on the board. And it doesn't really matter that you're the third-ranked team in the South versus the fifth-ranked team in the in the East. If the fifth-ranked team in the East and everybody above them is gone, and maybe it was an AQ, is better than the third-ranked team in the South, they're going to get in.
2: And now to join us to analyze this debate this maybe crossfire style we welcome in greg thomas and frank rossi who have uh, both co-hosted this show now i'm gonna uh, somehow turn these two guys loose on this topic um we've got uh, the pros and cons of taking this uh alignment and going to six regions of about 40 teams apiece frank and greg like to welcome you in
6: it's good to be in pat glad to be here pat
2: All right, guys, there's been a lot of discussion amongst our group, uh, some heated discussion about this. We're going to try to keep this to a dull roar over the course of the next 10 minutes or so. I know that Greg is in favor of adding a couple of more regions, and Greg, why don't you give us a thumbnail sketch of why?
6: Uh, Sure. So for me, more regions means uh, more ranked teams. I'm assuming that we're going to stick with 10 ranked teams per region if we go to six which would mean 20 more ranked teams. And since we don't have a once-ranked, always-ranked scenario, we wind up with 20 more ranked teams at the end of the season. That gives us more data points in the primary criteria, of specifically the results versus ranked opponents. And we desperately need more criteria when figuring out uh, where our precious five at-large uh, bid should go. Um, six Regions also creates an opportunity within the division to redistribute conferences in a way that creates some balance amongst the regions. Uh, there's some imbalance, uh, particularly in the West region, which over the last handful of years has been um, pretty top heavy with uh, WIAC, MIAC, uh, NWC has been quite good in the past as well. Maybe the ARC as well has had some really good teams over the past and they're all lumped together in the same region, uh, we can spread that out with uh, two extra regions. Um, When we have six number one ranked teams, six regions, six number one ranked teams, that gives us an opportunity to really dive in and have a meaningful conversation about who the best four teams are for the tournament. So when we pick the top four teams, we're not picking from just north, south, east, and west. Now we have six teams and we can – Um, not just dismiss one team because they might be ranked number two, we can have a discussion about where the top four ranked teams are. And we've had that in the past, uh, and in other years we don't have that. Uh, Sometimes we just sort of default to uh, the top ranked teams in each of the four geographic regions currently. Uh, And then beyond that, During selection, you're going to wind up with uh, six teams on the table being discussed for inclusion instead of just four. Uh, a frequent criticism of the current system is that uh, Worthy teams are getting blocked uh, by their position in their own regional rankings. If we spread out uh, those teams into different regions, some of those teams that have been blocked in the past Maybe they're getting discussed uh, on the same line or in the state at the same time as teams that had been blocking them before. And you get i think I think you wind up getting a more holistic um, uh, a conversation about the at large teams. so there there's a lot of good that can come from uh, more regions and realigning conferences within those new regions.
2: You know, Frank, we have. Here in this conversation, the three people have basically been involved in all of our mock bracketing or mock selection conversations over the course of the past uh, few years. I have to admit that the possibility of having six teams on the table at once makes this a lot more interesting and maybe a bit more nuanced conversation. Whereas in a lot of cases, it's just like we have four teams on the table. We know one of them is not a serious candidate oftentimes, and it becomes, you know, just kind of picking from the remaining three. Here we have a few more teams to talk about.
4: But the problem I have overall is kind of twofold. Number one, I go back to what we were doing in 1998, I think it was, when we went to the AQ system in the first place. And the premise was that we were going to be balancing access to conferences, big or small in terms of uh, strength index, and also giving a chance to teams that played really strong schedules but didn't win their conference because of that fact, a chance to still get access to the tournament. And right now, we are gonna be at what, five Pool C bids uh, this coming year, it looks like. And if you expand it to six six regions, you would end up exceeding the number of at-large bids across the country. You would leave out possibly the next best team in a region because you just ran out of the pure spaces that are out there. Now, you risk that every year. I get that the South got three teams last year when uh, we had only, I think, five bids as well, although we had a pool B bid as well uh, that year. But it's a little tougher to swallow when you actually know every year that this is going to be a possibility. So I have a problem with that. And I also have kind of a in the sense of, you know, I, I don't think they're going to rank 10 teams per region. If that, if you do start doing that at 60 teams yeah. across the country, that's more than 25% of uh, the membership at that point, that would be uh, rankable because NESCAC doesn't count. So you're at 238 versus 60. So that's a lot of teams, and that's a lot of losses starting to mount up in the bottom part of those numbers, and I'm not sure how you could even begin to rank the three lost teams against each other, because you may have to go that deep in some of these regions. But the thing that I like about the four-region system is that we're leaving it to the regions to handle ranking their teams in the first place, and letting the national board only take it at the point where we need to compare four teams that wouldn't otherwise be comparable to each other uh, terrible if you want to take the word out to its fullest extent uh and letting them uh, work their magic at that point i think there's a problem when you're asking a national board to start comparing teams that there's just no way to compare and i think this system actually starts to give give these teams a more strategic advantage to sort of scheduling inside their own island instead of going outside their comfort zone a little bit inside their own region to play other teams so I think it actually creates more problems in trying to compare teams in the long run, especially for a national committee that won't know exactly what those numbers all mean.
2: I will say this. We have a couple of regions right now in Division Three football that you can kind of subdivide. You've got your east region, which you can divide into the teams in New England, and then also in the east are the Empire 8, the Liberty League, the MAC, and the NJAC. And often the 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 uh, the new england teams kind of play amongst themselves and don't venture out so much similarly in the South region, you've got the uh, ASC and the SAA. The teams, especially the teams in Texas, and also in the uh, the South Atlantic, as it were, that don't necessarily cross over and have games. A lot of games against the USA South or the Old Dominion Athletic Conference or the Centennial. And actually, as I'm talking about this, I'm looking at the the West too. Of course, there's a lot of crossover play between the NWC and the Skyac. And uh, not as much, you know, people getting in planes and going from the West Coast to the Midwest to play teams from the American Rivers or the MIAC or the YAC. And so the reason why I'm saying this is uh, the, the possibility of breaking these regions up into smaller regions does, in fact, I think, have the opportunity to do what you say, Frank, and that New England could get away with never playing anybody else and still have a team on the table whereas right now i guess we're kind of dependent on the east region uh, regional advisory committee the rac uh, keeping that from happening
4: yeah and i'm not saying that every new england team deserves to get blocked but i'm also aware of the strategicness of scheduling that we've seen or even a conference building that we've seen over time to to assume that these teams won't be going strategic at a certain point because what's the point of it's to get to the playoffs at the end of the day. And any coach would tell you that, ultimately. your conference or at least get to the playoffs. We saw the NEFC NAF, split the year, or uh, I think it was about a year after Endicott kind of feels like they got the shaft when they uh, got uh, displaced by a two-loss team in the at-large scenario. Uh, the NEFC split after that, and it was kind of a, 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 a how to put this euphemistically, a
2: slippery slope. A,
4: hey, guys. Yeah, there you go. But it kind of a uh, we didn't like that uh, moment uh, by the NEFC. They said we could have always had two bids by splitting up our 14 teams, and here we are. We're going to do that now. It really does create strategicness beyond what I would be comfortable with in terms of you want football because of the limited number of results to be played in a way that you get some great matchups throughout the season. You want to actually give incentives to playing great teams during the season. This system goes away from that.
2: Right, and not to cut you off, but uh, I have to play talk show host. And uh, Greg, let me uh, me throw something back in your direction for a second. You've got now the scenario where you've got six teams on the board. One of them, let's say, of course, well, in this case, we're almost guaranteed one of them is going to be from New England, depending on how they arrange or rearrange these regions. Um, And you and I and Frank were on this call a few years ago when we had six and four UW Oshkosh, six and one against division three teams on the table. And they very nearly got in the tournament. I have to think that this is the one thing that bothers me is that anybody who's on the table has an opportunity to get into the tournament. And when you only have five pool C bids, that's kind of what scares me a little bit.
6: It it is. And and Frank's point about having six regions and, just five at-large bids is a fair one, and I mean the amount of uh, the amount of invitations to the tournament, where we're where you're really trying to zero in and find the five best teams that aren't that didn't already qualify. That's the one place where I think the mandate is to try and find the best remaining teams. Um, it, you know, it, you you have you increase the opportunity to. Uh, to not find five when you are talking about maybe uh, a, a six team from New England uh, that that may have support in the room, warranted or not, and 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 you never know. You'd have to see the you know you'd have to see the resumes and whatnot, and expanding expanding out to six regions with just the five at large bids, maybe that spurs on a different conversation about the access ratio and finding ways to increase the number of at-large bids Uh, but that's a separate podcast
2: it is a separate podcast (laughs) and uh you know uh uh, frank and greg and i are not going to get to solve this situation they may not even ask our opinion but we're going to put our opinions out here so that uh, it becomes uh, part of the discussion at least among the division three football fan base guys thanks for joining me on the podcast All right, so we've spent a lot of time on this already, but I just want to throw out there what I would see as a possible six-region alignment before we go any further. Uh, First off, I'm going to take the NESCAC, and I would put them into the new Northeast region, but I'm not going to count them towards the 40 members that we would uh, need in that region because the NESCAC doesn't participate in the playoffs, and I think that makes this a valid way to go. So my Northeast is going to have the Commonwealth Coast Conference. It's going to have the ECFC. It would have the MASCAC, the NEWMAC. Those are all... Conferences that are all within New England, and then I'm going to add the New Jack.
1: New Jack City.
2: Excuse me, the N-Jack, in order to get to 39 teams. Then we're going to have an East Region, and it's going to have the Empire Eight. It's going to have the Liberty League. It's going to have the Presidents Athletic Conference, and it's going to have the Ohio Athletic Conference for a total of 34 teams. Maybe a little bit short of 40. I blame the fact that the Empire 8 and the Liberty League just can't manage to find enough other uh, football-playing members. The Mid-Atlantic, in my scheme here, would have 38 teams. That would encompass the Centennial Conference, the MAC, the USA South, and the Old Dominion Athletic Conference. Pretty much right at 40. A Great Lakes region could have 44 teams out of the North Coast, out of the MIAA, out of the Heartland, out of the CCIW, and out of the NAC, the Northern Athletics Collegiate Conference. A central region could potentially have 47 teams. That's the American Rivers Conference, the MIAC, the Midwest Conference, the WIAC, and the UMAC. And then the west region could have 35 teams. And, and that's basically everybody I haven't mentioned yet. The American Southwest Conference, the SkyAC, the Northwest Conference, and the SAA. So like this west region format of the south region islands as we know them today and the west coast islands, uh, is kind of mirroring what is used in baseball and is used in other uh, some other division three sports. It's only 35 teams, so it's a little bit short. If somebody felt like they really wanted to balance it, you could consider like moving the UMac to this west or the ARC to this west and then balance them both out a little bit more towards 40. But I like the fact that uh, you know these conferences that are isolated and kind of play each other anyway kind of belong in a region together. Uh, I feel like this is a reasonable balance from a competitive standpoint, as long as we have someone like the NJAC in the Northeast, uh, the Liberty League would be okay there as well. But I, I really would like a stronger conference in that group. I know we are like deep in the weeds here, but that's why we're deep into this podcast here in the off season with it. Um, yeah, this is the time to be talking about such things. Not uh, we wouldn't be able to take twenty minutes on a uh, you know on a, on a week three podcast to talk about this. So.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, if Division Three details and minutia and and the future of the division, this stuff that's all going to come down the pike. If that's all your thing, you know, you can't really ask for three better guys to to break it down than than Frank, Greg, and yourself. You know, it might take me a couple listens to get through it. I'm gonna be honest, but it's a, it's important stuff to, uh, to to try to figure out, especially when we get to the to the um you know if six regions is a big change from from four regions and it'll affect playoffs, seating, bracketing, and all that stuff down the line.
3: Every thought of yours is a friend of mine.
2: We start off with uh something we're going to talk a little bit more about in the march podcast but i was at the Gallardi trophy ceremony here in this final week of february in which uh it turned into uh it being awarded instead of a couple of days before the stag bowl it was awarded at a uh, st john's alumni organization alumni association uh get together um in which uh, jackson erdman uh, got up he talked uh, we'll talk a little bit with him in the in the next podcast, but uh, that was uh, something that was finally handed out. I'll tell you this, uh, Keith. I was, and I almost called you Dave because I'm in hoops. I'm in hoops mindset still. I would have taken that a kind of way. I I'm at this event. Uh, I'm not a St. John's alum. Uh, I know lots of St. John's alums, and I'm, I'm there very consciously dressed in uh, black slacks, a white shirt, and a bright blue tie you know a color which nobody in the MIAC wears. Right. I, I felt like I could that was as neutral as I could get. But I still felt like a sometimes I felt like I was a fly on the wall kind of watching something cool and otherwise it was like yeah, I know like six people in this room and <laughs> we're going to we're going to talk about division 3 football but I felt really out of place at times.
1: Well, that's weird you feel feeling out of place at a division 3 setting but it's probably I don't know if instructive is the right word but to remember that like we're all these really specific communities that are tied together not tightly necessarily um you know so, something that happens on a campus in texas and something that happens on a campus in ohio and new england like we have these similar characteristics but we're all very different and very unique in each one of our uh, our individual places
2: i will say this you know st john's feels and i think rightly so that they are in position to challenge for a national championship. They have the the consensus best quarterback in Division Three coming back. They lose a lot of they lose a lot of guys who are seniors, um, but you know every every school basically does. I, I think that this is uh you know this is a, a real opportunity for St. John's coming up here in 2019.
1: Well, it's always an opportunity, and, and I, I think you're right that it's a real opportunity with with Jackson Herdman back. Um, there are probably some. Um, David Tomorrow fans who would who would be interested in um, in having a debate on on which quarterback uh, is going to be the best quarterback next season, but I, I think you know nobody played. I mean, certainly nobody played Mary Hardin Baylor closer, not Mount Union, and, and not Whitewater um, than St. John's did. So you can make that argument. You certainly can can make an argument for, again, You know, if you have a, a great quarterback, you have a chance, especially when you're within one of these big programs where um, having talent around the rest of the, the ball having a good team makeup is not going to be a problem. I like any season that we're, when we're looking at the season and we don't know for a fact this team is going to win the national championship. Even when it was the years where it was Mount Union versus Whitewater, I know a lot of people out there hated it, but... We, you and I, enjoyed that at least if we were fairly certain it was going to be those two teams in, in the stag bowl. And in some years, it just happened that way, And but we didn't know it was going to be like that at the beginning of the season. But even when we did feel like it was going to be like that, they're like at least there were two of them, and you didn't know who was going to beat who. So I think we're working, looking into next season where you may, you may have five or seven teams with the really legitimate shot, and that, that should make it a fun year to watch.
2: Anything else we want to cover in this podcast, Keith?
1: No, I think I think it's pretty pretty lengthy.
2: It is indeed. This is a good a good podcast for February. It's better than not having a podcast for February. I I hope you think that. And this was the D3Football.com around the nation podcast number two thirty-five, released on February twenty eighth, twenty nineteen. No time like the present, your last day of February. Thanks for listening and tune in for the rest of our coverage throughout the offseason. If you like this podcast, you know how this thing works. You're rated in Apple Podcasts, you rated in Spotify, you rate it rate it on yelp i guess rate it in facebook i don't care just rate it somewhere that will help other football fans find it even if they don't know what division three is you can also leave comments for us on the blog page you can reach us to talk more about division three football on twitter using the d3 fb hashtag i'm at d3 football and keith is at d3 keith we have a message board devoted to division three sports did you know you can join the conversation by registering to post at d3boards.com also you could follow d3football.com on facebook The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music is by DJ Mentos, whom you can find at DJMentos.com. Thanks to our guests, Don Beebe, Colton Bartholomew, and our panelists, Greg Thomas and Frank Rossi, as well as sports information director Brian Kipley for their time and their assistance on this edition of our show. And, of course, thanks to the creator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com and my co-host, the James to my Bartles or something Keith McMillan the the the, are you Waldorf or you Statler
1: uh definitely the balder guy no uh, you're the balder guy I should I should be the guy with the hair and then I don't
2: know which crusty old white guy do you want to be
1: yeah, I was going to say, you should have picked, like, Bert and Ernie, and then I would just say I'm the I'm the more tan skin one.
2: There we go. We're in the offseason here in Division three football, but there's still new content on D3Football.com to follow. We'll have coaching changes for you. We'll keep an eye on the players who have uh, prospects to play in the pros. We'll keep an eye on 2019 football schedules. We'll get those on the website before we have the next podcast and that. And you can find a new podcast in this feed from us each month here in the offseason. Hey, before we go, I just want to uh, mention to people. i have gotten a couple of questions about this, like via email, or uh, in DMs, or on the uh, on the message board. So the quote that was at the end of the podcast for most of the previous year, of course, was from Mike Drass. Maybe that was recognizable to people. We ran it first at the end of the kind of our our uh, Mike Drass remembrance podcast back last spring. Um, you know, we have a clip from Jim Margraf, which we ended last month's podcast with, and that's what we're going to end with for, uh, you know, the next year or so. So just keep in mind, that is how we remember, uh, you know, these guys who have been big here in the Division Three football community and have given of their time to Division Three football and have given of their time to us as well, that we have something that, uh, you know, we want people to remember. And we want to keep remembering these guys. These guys are not, uh, their impact is not going away.
1: I agree that their impact isn't gonna go away. And I think it's a nice touch for our longtime listeners, for our OGs as as one might say, to uh to hear that. You know, if you don't if you don't know who it is, it's just a clip at the end. But if you do know and and if you're one of the people who were fortunate enough to cross paths with Mike Drass or or with Jim Margraf, who, um, by all accounts, and not just by us, but we're two of the most um, you know, giving and gregarious and, and fun to be around guys who who made football fun I mean you know there, there are plenty of people who play football at an, another level and, and and decide they hate it and quit and there were, there were so many folks who went to Wesley and Johns Hopkins and took you know, grew into better men and were good students and also just had fun playing. Um, you know if we can add a little touch at the end of our podcast to, to, to hat tip to that and to everything they did for us you know by all means.
5: There'll be a time to, uh, to look at all this stuff and to reflect, but now's not the time.